All right, so today we're going to be, of course, looking at a passage here. We're kind of in between series, so if you feel free to go ahead and turn to the passage there in 2 Timothy. I'll only look at a short couple of verses this morning, but they're extremely important. Uh, during one of his shows, a former late-night talk host conducted a pop quiz of his audience, asking them, say, hey, can you name the apostles or uh, the Ten Commandments? And apparently no one in the audience could actually do that. Well, he asked them, though, after that, hey, name the four members of the Beatles, and automatically they were able to name all four. So although this host used this as kind of a part of his comedy routine at the beginning of his show, his questions actually reveal the general knowledge of the Bible in society. According to the 2022 State of the Bible study done by the American Bible Society, Nearly four in ten Americans say they've never read the Bible outside of church services or mass. Another two in ten say they read it on their own no more than twice a year. That leaves another four in ten reading on their own at least three times a year. And those who read it daily amount to about 10% of all Americans. Right? That's not a lot of people, if you think about our population of our country, right? That read their Bible daily. And if that's not sovereign to you, I don't know what is. Uh, so today, in today's sermon, I want to ask the question, I want you to answer it in your head and in your heart, do you know the Holy Scriptures? Ask yourself that. Do you know the Bible, God's inspired Word? That, this is exactly what this book is, right? It's God's inspired Word. Not have you read it, which, right, yes, I led with that, but do you know it? There's a difference between reading something and knowing something. So, Today, like I said, we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we're looking at verses 14 and 17. And we're going to see that Paul exhorted Timothy to hold fast to the Holy Scriptures for his faith and his ministry. And we know this book, the Bible, is the Word of God, and we are called to know it. Christians are also to learn the Bible, right? We're called to learn it, and so it will guide our faith and guide our lives. So what better way to do this than from the Bible? Our desire here, like we said at the beginning, Vinny mentioned it, right? Our desire at Pillar is to know Jesus and to make him known. And I would say the same is true about the Bible, right? That our desire is to know the Bible and to make it known. So today's sermon, we're going to see two lessons that Paul wants us to learn about Scripture. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and as our time. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the ability we have to open up your word, to dive into it, to actually hear about your word in the scriptures, God. We know that you use your word to, in so many ways to, to present the gospel, to change lives, to encourage, to exhort, to convict us of sin. And we just pray that as we open this, this book today and see your beautiful gospel, that we will just be transformed forever by reading this book. I pray for the people in this room who have maybe even never opened this book outside of church or they read it every day, Lord, everybody in between, God, that they will remember that your word is, is so amazing, that it's so beautiful, and that it will point us to Jesus. And so, God, I pray that this would be a time where we would be encouraged, we would be challenged, but we would also understand the importance of your word. And we thank you for this time. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so before we dive into this passage, I know we haven't been in 2 Timothy uh, if at least uh, for a very long time, so give you some background before we dive into the passage. All right, of course, this is Paul's second letter to Timothy. He wrote to him 
we, saw, we see First Timothy, and he's writing from a Roman jail. Chapter 1, verse 8 shows us that. He's in Rome. He writes to Timothy, who's in Ephesus, and he's combating apostasy in the church, right? People who fall away from the faith, who turn and repent, or they turn away from the faith. So this is what he is battling here. So before we got in, get into our passage today, I do want to read the context of chapter 3. We're not going to spend time there. We just don't have the time. It would, it would be a, a twice as long sermon, and I don't think you guys want that this morning. So I do want to read that. So go to the, verse 1. We're going to walk through the context of this so we kind of understand where Paul is coming from in verses 14 through 17. So in chapter 3, verse 1, it says this, But understand this that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not, lo- not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them there are those who creep into household and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from all of them the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who have a desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Right, so this is the context of pa- chapter 3, right? kind of sounds like 2023 in my book, especially the first nine verses. Uh, we, like I said, we don't, that's a whole other sermon. But Paul here is already charging Timothy to stand firm in the faith and proclaim the gospel to those at Ephesus. Right, so that's our context for verses 14 and 17. So let's go ahead and read those as well. It says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All right, so the, this is the, the passage we're going to really focus on in their next uh, few moments together. So the first lesson we're going to see here from verses 14 and 15 is that we are to learn the scriptures to see salvation in Christ Jesus. We are to learn the scriptures to see, to see salvation in Christ Jesus. So look again here at verse 14. Paul begins with this, hey, continue in what you have learned. He is exhorting him, saying, hey, what you've already been learned, continue in that, right? Very simple to understand. And, and Timothy was a, a pretty good disciple. He had learned from others as a Jewish young boy. He had gotten different teachers, and even most recently from Paul. In chapter 1, 
uh, of 2 Timothy, Paul writes, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. So again, Paul is one of his teachers in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So Paul is reminding him, hey, those teachers you have learned from, the things they've taught you, keep going with it. So look at what it also says. He says, continue what you learned and have firmly believed. Well, what is this idea here? Well, Paul is very intentional in his word uses all throughout every letter that he writes. There's no word that he just uses or phrase that is used haphazardly. Paul is saying here, hey, remain true to what you believe. In the New American Standard translation, they use they translate it become convinced. This is the only time this phrase is actually used in the entire New Testament. And it has the meaning of to be sure about something because of its reliability. Another way to think of it is a fixed, non-negotiable truth that are not subject to compromise or dilution. So we, we know this to be true, right? We know that every single day, no matter what, without fail, the sun's going to rise. We may not see it, but we know without a fact that it's, we know with a fact that it's going to rise every single day. So we have become convinced that this is going to happen no matter what. Just like today, we have become convinced, unfortunately, that Chick-fil-A is closed. And we will not be able to go get a chicken sandwich after church. Unfortunately, that is something that is true. But we know without a shadow of a doubt that that's going to happen. Those things are going to occur. So what Paul is getting at here is saying, hey, Timothy, those things that you have believed, that you have so firmly become convinced about, keep after that. Right? And he's reminding him again at the end of verse 14, knowing from whom you learned it. Right? It's, again, a reminder of the teachers that he's been taught from and keep on from them. We can always learn from all of our teachers and people around us. And look at verse 15. It says, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. So we know from childhood that every single Jewish boy and girl would be, would be taught from the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, and they would go up to a certain point, and if they went any further in their education, they would go deeper into the Old Testament. But notice what here Paul is saying. He's actually saying, hey, you've learned it from a certain group of people. Flip over to chapter 1 in your Bible. Because he, he shares in chapter 1 who exactly has taught him, who has helped him know the faith. So we know that Paul was one. But notice in verse 5 what Paul says. He says, I am reminded of you, this is chapter 1, verse 5, excuse me, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So we know that Paul, or that, excuse me, Timothy was taught by his grandmother and his mother in the things of the faith. They were quintessential. I bet we could go around this room and say, who in your life has impacted you, who pushed you closer to the gospel? And I guarantee you there would be a handful, probably a good amount of people that would say grandmothers, grandparents, father, mother, right? But we see here that Paul is reminding Timothy, say, hey, remember your grandmother and your mother? They, they, were, they were quintessential to you coming to know the Lord and bringing up the faith. But notice back in verse or chapter 3 what he is talking about here. He says, hey, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Right? That's kind of a unique term, right? Acquainted, right? We're, oh, we have an acquaintance, right? Uh, with the sacred writings. Well, what is he talking about? Well, we know at the time of this writing that the New Testament wasn't a book yet or a, a comprised thing. So the only thing it could be is the Old Testament. So as a young Jewish boy, Timothy would have been taught from the Old Testament. Notice what Paul says about his acquaintance with the scriptures here, the sacred writings. He says, 
that they are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So what does that mean? That's, that's kind of a unique way of phrasing what Paul is trying to get after here. Notice that Paul does not say that, this, the, that Scripture is salvation. right? It doesn't bring salvation, but it points to the one whose salvation comes from, which we know to be Jesus. Right? Even Jesus said this to the Pharisees in John chapter 5, verse 39 and 40. He said, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, right? Talking about himself. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So even Jesus himself was talking to the religious leaders of the day, saying, hey, you can study the scriptures all you want, thinking that, hey, the eternal life is, is there. Like, but no, it's ultimately pointing to Jesus. So this is what Paul is saying to Timothy about making you wise. He wants Timothy to continue in his study of scripture, the Old Testament scriptures, as it points to Jesus. Paul is saying, hey, that all the scriptures that right, he has at this time point to Jesus for salvation. So the question may be like, wait a minute, you're telling me that Jesus is found in the Old Testament. That's exactly what I'm saying. So listen to what Luke writes in Luke chapter 24, verse 27. So Jesus, right, after his resurrection, this is the context of this verse, he's on the road to Emmaus, and listen to what he says to the, the two disciples. He says, in beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I think that moment in scripture is probably one of my top five moments I wish I could just go back in time and be at. To hear Jesus himself say, hey, this is all the Old Testament. This is pointing to me. This one, this one, this one. And Luke again in, in Acts 28, 23 even shows what Paul does. He says in when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him as at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from both the law of Moses, so there's the first five books of the Old Testament, and from the prophets. So that makes up the rest. So we need to understand this, church, right? If you're a Christian in this room, this book right here, the Bible, is one story, right? There's 66 different books, different letters, different ways of writing, but it's not 66 different books. It's one big story. It in all points to one thing, Jesus, even in the Old Testament. All right, so here we go. We're about to go on a journey. So this is where you're going to have to use your fingers, your scriptures. We're going to do some Bible gymnastics here. Okay, so I want you to make sure this is so important that I want to take a few moments. I could spend the rest of the day walking through different passages in the Old Testament. I wrote a whole paper. If you want to read it, you can read it. It's probably not that great. But you, it's, it's all about this, about the big term is called biblical theology, understanding that the Bible is one story. If you're in my small group, our community group, this is what we've been walking through for the last year. Uh, we've been walking through the big redemptive thread of the Bible. Okay, so, you ready? Stretch out the thumbs, do what you got to do, go all the way to the beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3. Okay, so bear with me. We're going to be flipping a lot. Some of these pages you, have, you may never have even flipped to, but we're going to get them today. All right, so we know Genesis 1 and 2, creation of the world. That's where we're at. However, Genesis 3, one of the worst moments, or arguably the worst moment in the history of mankind, Adam and Eve, they're walking in the garden. All of a sudden, this sneaky snake uh, comes in and starts tempting them. Say, hey, did God really say don't eat from that tree? And what does Adam, or Adam and Eve do? Unfortunately, they eat from the, the tree, right? So in verse 15, right, God, if he finally comes into the garden. He says, hey, where are you guys at? Because they're hiding. 
And we get to chapter, or in verse 14, I'm not going to read it, but he actually talks to the serpent first. He, he doesn't even talk to Adam and Eve first, he talks to the serpent. Notice what he says in verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his hilt. So, what does that mean? Well, the, in, that word enmity in the ESV means just kind of hostility. So, what Jesus is, or what God is saying to Adam and Eve here, in the moment of the fall, the worst moment in the history of mankind, there was a plan of redemption. God said, hey, I'm going to send someone one day from your offspring, from your seed, who will ultimately redeem all this that you just messed up. We get that right there, the very last part. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Again, he's talking to the serpent here, which we know to be Satan. So what does that mean? That means that one day Jesus on the cross would die for our sins. He's going to ultimately give the death blow to Satan. We have a book that we read for our son James. It's called The Biggest Story, but I will actually mention at the end of the sermon. But there's a, when it's talking about, um, I think, the crucifixion, it says the snake crusher crushes or something like that. But he, he, throughout the whole Old Testament, or the new, this Bible storybook, he calls Jesus the snake crusher in the New Testament. And that's exactly what he's referencing is chapter 3, verse 15 of Genesis. So church, if we do not understand Genesis 3.15, we're missing out on the entire story of the Bible. Because this is really where we see the first time that the gospel is introduced into the story. And then from then on, it's until we get to the end of the New Testament, until we eventually will get to, to go home with Jesus. Okay, flip over to Genesis chapter 12. Some of these you can be like, wait, this doesn't exactly point to Jesus. Well, it, it, it's part of the story. So Genesis chapter 12, we see Abram. We're going to call him Abraham for the sake of. Abraham here is called out by God. He says, hey, I want you to go to this land. I want you to, to be obedient, follow after. He was a, a pagan man, and God called him out. So chapter 12 of Genesis in verse 2, it says this, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this is a big thing right here. This is where God's coming to Abraham and saying, hey, I'm calling you out. You're going to be a great nation. You're going to be a, uh, have all these... Um, Honors, uh, so look at chapter 15 too. So that's kind of the call of Abraham. And now we're going to see actually the covenant with Abraham. In chapter 15, look at verse 5 and 6. And then we're going to look at one more set of verses in chapter 17. So in chapter 15, verse 5, it says, And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are unable, or, or if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall be your offspring. And he believed the Lord and counted it to him as righteousness. So again, God is saying, hey, if you can count on the stars or go out to the ocean and count all the sands on the seashore, that's how many offspring you're going to have, right? And that's exactly what we'll see. Go over to chapter 17. In chapter 17, he continues, he, he confirms this covenant with the sign of circumcision. And in verse 6, he says this, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So here, God has promised Abraham, saying, Hey, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you like the, your descendants, like the stars in the sky. Kings will come from you. I'm going to make an everlasting covenant. 
And when God makes a covenant, he doesn't break it. All right? So go to Genesis chapter 49. So at the end of the, the book, so like I said, we've skipped over a lot. Jacob, all those, those great heroes of the faith, patriarchs of the faith. And in, in chapter 49, Jacob is literally on his deathbed. He gathers his sons around him and he blesses them. He goes through each one of the sons. And I want us to look at verse 10. This may be an odd verse, but you'll, you, I think you'll understand it in the context. Starting in verse 8, he, he blesses him. But verse 10, he says this to him. He says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Right? So we know that a scepter is used for a king, a ruler. And we know that Jesus comes from the line of the tribe of Judah. So we see that here in this passage, that eventually, again, someone's coming that's going to undo all that was done in the garden. All right, Exodus chapter 1, so page or two over. And we're going to begin flying here in a second through the rest of the Old Testament. But these are key things, the story. Like I said, I don't have time to walk through all of this. Like we could spend a whole year like we've done in our small group walking through this. In chapter 1, verse 7, right, remember what God told Abraham in chapter 15, right? Look at the stars. You're going to have abundant descendants. So John, or Exodus chapter 1, verse 7 says, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Already in the several generations, God is being faithful to the covenant that he made with Abraham, right? They were being fruitful and multiplied. And of course, we know the story of Exodus that God eventually would bring them out of the land, thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe over a million people out of the land of Egypt by the time they left. So God had already been faithful in this immediate promise. Go to Exodus chapter 19. I want us to see this here. So now that the Egyptians, or sorry, the Israelites are out of the land of Egypt, they went through all the plagues, all those things, they come to Mount Sinai. This is where Moses gets the Ten Commandments, which we're not going to read, but you see that in verse 20, or chapter 20. But in chapter 19, verse 5 and 6, we hear what God tells Moses. He says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So again, God is promising them this thing. If they're obedient, if they follow me, if you follow me, this is what's going to happen. Well, of course, we know that after that, they did not follow him, right? We see that Moses dies. They, they have to wander around in the desert for 40 years. And ultimately, it would lead to the book of Joshua. So real quick, flip over to Joshua. And we're going to see, right, that after the Israelites, they rebelled against God. They, they were on the edge of the promised land. They said, nope, not for us yet. There's, those people are too big. And they had to wander around the desert for 40 years or wilderness. So now in Joshua, in verse 2 and 3, we're going to see that they're about to enter the promised land. Like, literally, the, the promise is about to be fulfilled. In Joshua chapter 2, right, verse 1 says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am about to give them, that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. So remember what, what God said in Genesis chapter 12? Hey, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make you, I'm going to have in chapter 15 all these descendants. So this is, this is again, the promised covenant that's ultimately going to lead us to Jesus. 
All right, now flip over to 2 Samuel. I told you we were doing some gymnastics here. So in 2 Samuel, right, we, after Joshua, the people fall away. Um, Judges comes. We've already preached through the book of Judges here, so if you want to know more about that, go back on our website, find those sermons. Uh, it's a very, very dark period in the history of the people of Israel, right? They just fall after their, their heart's desires, and it got into a lot of trouble. We see Ruth. I wish I had time to talk about that. But in 2 Samuel, right, the people requested from Samuel saying, hey, we want a king, and they put forth Saul. Didn't cut it. He didn't do the job that God had called him to do. And so God left him. And ultimately, David was called to be king. Now, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we're going to see the covenant that God makes with David. All right, it's a big deal. So if you've already kind of hear the theme, that there's all these different covenants in the Bible. Um, that, that's part of how God worked in this day and age. So 2 Samuel chapter 7 Verse 12, it says this, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Hmm. Well, we know that no man is going to live forever, so he must be talking about somebody else. Wait a minute. Remember that Jesus comes from the line of David. Okay? Another clue to the story that's going on here. So, a couple more passages here in the Old Testament. Go over to Isaiah. So, a pretty large book. Where I said we're skipping a lot. So, go all the way past Psalms, Proverbs. You can get to Isaiah and go to Isaiah 7. So, most of us are most likely familiar with a lot of the passages in the book of Isaiah regarding Jesus. We often hear it right at Christmas time, which is fine and great, but it's not just Christmas passages. They're prophecies about the coming Messiah. So Isaiah chapter 7, and we're going to look at two verses in chapter 9 in a second. Look at verse 13 and 14. All right, the title of your section, if you have sections in your Bible, may say the sign of Emmanuel. In verse 13, he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a son. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Right? We know this to be Jesus because of what we talk about all the time at Christmas. But we also know that the only one we know who bore a virgin was Mary. So we again see here, right? they called him Emmanuel. Flip over to chapter 9. Again, a very popular verse we read at Christmas time for a very uh, legit reason. In chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And the throne of David, wait, see there, and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Right, so we already see this, and we had time. We could have spent the whole time in Isaiah this morning and walked through all the different prophecies. And these were made several hundred years before Jesus ever entered the scene. All right, one more passage that I'm going to make you turn to. Flip over to the next book, Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah, right, it was another prophet. We call him the weeping prophet because he preached the gospel, and hardly anybody repented, right? And so it was a very hard ministry for him. But notice there's some beautiful things in chapter 33, starting in verse 
14. We see that Jeremiah writes, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at the time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. So again, Jeremiah points back throughout all the history of the writing of the Old Testament, saying, wait, remember that house of Israel, house of Judah? There's someone coming. I'm not going to make you turn to these for the sake of, but Micah 5.2 is another verse. But you, O Bethlehem, Arephath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Even all the way up to Zechariah, the second to last book of the Old Testament, we see it. Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice, O greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, a fo- the foil of a donkey. Right? And we see Jesus exactly do that in the New Testament. Right. Last passage we're going to turn to, I promise then we're going to go back to 2 Timothy. Go to Matthew chapter 1. Right? Matthew chapter 1. You're probably like, some of you are like, oh, no. We're in the genealogy. Don't skip it, people. Don't be that Bible reader. Read it. Because of the very reason we're about to read some of the We're not reading it all. I don't have all that time. Matthew is the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew 1. Leads with that. And I was like, oh, man, I've got to read all these names I can't pronounce. But look at verse 2. All right, let's look at verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Chapter two, or Verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Skip down to verse 5. And Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Ruth the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. So wait a minute. Those are some people we've already talked about, right? And then look at verses 15 and 16 to summarize it. And it says, Iliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathen, and Mathen, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Yeah, I could have gone to, to Matthew chapter 1 and just read all that, but you wouldn't have gotten to see the beauty of the journey of the Old Testament that ultimately points to the man named Jesus. Right, so when we think about it, like, oh, Jesus is only in the New Testament. no. Jesus is throughout all of the Old Testament. And that's exactly what Paul is getting at in 2 Timothy. So feel free to flip back over that. So Paul is making sure that Timothy is reminded, like, hey, all those sacred scriptures that you've been studying all this time, they ultimately point to Jesus, right? Timothy knew the scriptures. He saw the wisdom of the Old Testament and realized that it was pointed to something better than just, hey, okay, here's the law, right? We know that the law would not bring salvation, it would bring, we could not have salvation through the law, only through Jesus. I think John MacArthur, pastor, said it very well about the, this whole concept of the Old Testament pointing to Jesus. He said, from Genesis through Malachi, that wisdom, like he talks about here in verse 14 or 15, reveals the holiness, majesty, and loving kindness of God and his gracious offer of forgiveness and redemption from sin for those who trust in him, and not themselves, and seek his grace and mercy. 
Wow, how beautiful is that, right? The Old Testament is not this dry old book that we no longer have to deal with. No, if anything, the Old Testament is alive with rich passages like we read and more that point to the man Jesus, the God-man, right? It ultimately points to the salvation that is only found in Jesus. So when we study the Scriptures, church, the Scriptures point to Jesus, right? He is the Savior of the world. So when we read the Scriptures, we need to know the Scriptures, understand that, hey, if we want to see Jesus, well, we need to read this book, right? Even the disciples came uh, to Jesus himself and said, hey, God, hey, Jesus, show us the Father. Well, if you have followed me, you've seen the Father because Jesus reflects God the Father. So remind ourselves of what Jesus said in John fourteen six: I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so the first lesson we need to learn about the Scriptures is that ultimately they point us to, through salvation to Jesus Christ. So the next lesson that Paul wants us to learn here is found in verses 16 and 17. We are to learn the Scriptures to see sanctification in Christ Jesus. So the first lesson we learned was to see salvation. Now we want to talk about sanctification, which naturally and only follows after salvation. So the scriptures not only point to the plan of salvation, how that salvation is only found in Jesus, but they also show us like after the fact that we've placed our faith in Jesus, how we can live like Jesus. Notice it all revolves around Jesus. So Paul shows us how his word, the God's word, uses it to sanctify us, right? If, if we're not familiar with what sanctification means, right, you've got two big terms. You've got justification. In the moment you repented of your sins, and place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are declared righteous before a holy God. That's justification. One-time thing doesn't happen again. But sanctification excuse me, is this ongoing progressive thing in your life for however long you live after you come to know Christ. God is making you more like Jesus. So those sins you used to struggle with and maybe don't struggle with as much now, that's sanctification because God is working in you to make, him, make you more like Jesus. So look at verses 16 and 17. We see that all Scripture is breathed out by God. That's a big deal, right? This is quintessential truth of being a follower of Jesus Christ. So what does that even mean? What is Paul saying? Okay, well, that's cool, breathed out by God, right? So every time God talks, little words come out of his mouth. No, that's not what it means. He's talking about the divine inspiration of Scripture, well, what does that mean? That sounds like a big theological word that seminarians talk about, pastors only talk about. No, this is important to your life, your everyday life as well. So what is inspiration then? Inspiration is the belief that the Holy Spirit worked through the biblical writers to pen God's word entirely and exactly as he intended. Church, please look at me right now. If you do not believe in the inspiration of God's word, it's a bad thing because there was, especially in the Southern Baptist Convention of which we're a part of, there was a big battle over this in the 70s and the 80s, and it almost tore this convention apart down the road towards liberalism because there were pastors, there were seminary professors who did not believe that this is God's inspired word. And that is a non-negotiable thing for a follower of Jesus Christ. If you don't believe in the inspiration of Scripture, then you'll believe in anything. Hands down, you will believe in anything and everything under the sun. Because, ah, well, if God's word is not fully true, then what does it matter? So, what does this actually mean for us today, though? You're probably, oh, okay, well, that's cool. There's some cool platitudes, but what does this mean? I think a great way to answer this is actually 
That's something we hold uh, to as a church here, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. It's just a statement of beliefs that represent the Southern Baptist Convention, but it says this. Literally, the first entry in this document is about the Scriptures, and I thought it was fitting for us to hear today. And I quote, The Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It is God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all Scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world. The true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All Scripture is a testimony to Christ, who is himself the focus of divine revelation. There's a lot in there. But know that God's Word is 100% inspired. There is no error. There, there's nothing in this book that's like, ah, no, nah, that's not true. Right? This is important, church, for us to know that the Bible is without error. It's totally true, it's trustworthy, and we can live our lives by it. Right? We all have to come to that decision in our faith journey, saying, yeah, I believe that the Bible, the written word of God is 100% true. And if we don't agree with that, it's going to be a lot of heartbreak in your life because you'll, you'll do whatever you want because you don't think, ah, well, that's just another book to sit on the coffee table or throw in the back of my car. Right? At the end of the day, God's word is inspired. So Paul shows us here as he continues on in this verse, verse 16, several things that the Scripture is profitable for. Notice first in our sanctification that the Scriptures are profitable for teaching. Right? So we, we literally, this is part of teaching and preaching in our church. This is literally using God's Word to teach the doctrines that are found in this book. So that doesn't mean you've got to go to seminary, get this theological degree. That's not at all what it means. But it does, new, does mean that you need to know more than just the basics of this book. All right, so we must know the doctrines of the Bible. Well, what is a doctrine? That's probably helpful to describe, right? Bobby Jameson, in his book called Sound Doctrine, defines doctrine as this. He says, Sound doctrine is a summary of the Bible's teaching that is both faithful to the Bible and useful for life. So what I mean by doctrine, that's more of a formal definition, it's any, the group of teachings on a certain subject in the Bible. It could be salvation, it could be sin, it could be like that. So anything you read through the Bible and you see it, the group of that is called doctrine. So my question for you, though, is do you, you know the doctrines of the Bible? Do you know the doctrines of God, of the Son, the, the Holy Spirit? What about sin, salvation, and grace? What does the Bible teach about those things? Do you know those? Or even repentance, regeneration, substitution, and ultimately redemption. Do you know these doctrines? Again, my question is not, hey, have you gone to seminary? But... Here's a question I do want you to think about. Do you know more about the Bible today than the day of your salvation? And I do say that in a convicting way because I want to make sure we know that this is just more than just a book to read. This is a life-giving, life-changing book. Do you, how much more do you know? Are you still on milk? What, what milk? Well, Paul uses the same thing into the Corinthians. He rebuked them saying, this in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 and 2. A different, I'm reading a different translation because I think it grasps this. It's, from, it's called the Phillips New Testament. It's more of a paraphrase, but he said it this way. 
he said, talking about Paul, I, my brothers, wasn't, wasn't able to talk to you as spiritual men. I had to talk to you as unspiritual, yet as babies in the Christian life. And my practice had been to feed you, as it were, with milk and not with meat. You were unable to digest meat in those days, and I don't believe you can do it now. So Paul was saying, hey guys, you, you can't move on to the deeper things of the Bible because you don't even understand the elementary things of the Bible. So church, I'm asking you and, and saying, hey, do you know the deeper things of the Bible? Right? doesn't mean you have to go pick up a systematic theology book to understand those. But we need to be growing in our faith. We need to be learning from the teachable. So Paul's saying, hey, the scriptures are profitable for teaching. But also look at the second thing he says. He says the, the scriptures are profitable for repute. Reproof, excuse me. So Paul moves on to saying, hey, believers will err. We'll, we'll believe some wrong things every now and again. Hopefully not too many. But again, he's rebuking them or reproofing them, saying, hey, when you believe in false doctrine, uh, like, hey, we need to reproof each other. That the, Our life is not in line with Scripture. We believe the wrong things. So church Christians, we are called to live our life according to this book. There's no other book we're called to. We're not... There's a lot of great books out there, right? Ten Habits of Effective People, whatever, you know, all the, the latest self-help books. That's not what should guide our life. God's Word should guide our life. We do not get to pick and choose what we believe is true or not true from this book. Okay? Everything we do should be measured according to God's Word. We, if it doesn't match what God says in this book, we, we don't change what God's Word says. We align ourselves with this book not the other way around, right? We, we do not get to change God's word for how we want it to act or how we want to do something, right? We don't get to redefine marriage. We don't get to redefine gender. God's word clearly says what marriage is in Genesis chapter 2. He clearly says what man and woman are in Genesis chapter 2. Again, the importance of the Old Testament, right? A whole other sermon. Moving on. All right, we do not get to change God's word for how we want it to act. God's word defines our life, not the other way around. That is extremely important. We must not equivocate on that today. So, moving on. I'm running out of time. We also know that the, the scriptures are profitable for teaching, for reproof, reproof, and for correction. Right? This, is, this is getting into the restoration of a believer, whether they, they kind of fought off false beliefs or sinful conduct. Right? We are called, as Christians, to turn from the old way of life and Move on to the way of doing things according to God's word, right? Cor heed the correction of God's word, fellow believers, right? As Paul talked about it, putting off the old way of life in Ephesians and putting on the new way of life, right? This is a positive thing for us when we are corrected. Hopefully, it's done in the, the right manner. Paul wrote in chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, talking to Paul, as he, or Timothy, excuse me, as he was a leader in the church, he says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents. Notice how it says, with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This is what correction looks like amongst the body of Christ. And notice the last one there in verse 16 before we get to chapter, or verse 17. He says it's also profitable for training in righteousness. Right? This is exactly what it sounds like. We, we train in certain areas of our life, whether it's in school or sports. Right? We do the things that we need to do to get better at those, and, and that's exactly what we do here. We know that God has declared us righteous. We're also called to live a righteous life. 
So this is that idea. We're building each other up. We're, we're training in the ways of the Lord. Paul wrote in his first letter to Timothy in chapter 4, verse 6, he says, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant to Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So church, we should do everything in our power, one, to know this book and to train ourselves in the ways of it so we may seek and grow in our righteousness. One of my favorite commentators said this about verse 16. He said, The scripture is thus absolutely incomparable. No other book, library, or anything else in the world is able to make a lost sinner wise for salvation. No other scripture is profitable for these ends, teaching us the true saving facts, refuting the lies and their delusions that deny these facts, restoring the sinner Christian to an upright position, educating, training, disciplining one, and genuine righteousness. That's what the Scripture does for us as Christians, right? It does these things. It helps us in our sanctification. And notice that Paul ends in verse 17 here. He says that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So what Paul is doing is, in verses 14 and 16, right, he's exhorting him to be reminded that if he, he follows this, he follows the gospel, he follows the contents of Scripture and aligns his life with him, then he will be complete for every good work. Right? And that's exactly the key to all of this. It's staying true to what God's Word says. In order to actually obey something, we need to know what it says. So that's why we, we need to know God's Word. And so Timothy had proved himself faithful to knowing the same writings, and ultimately he would be able to do the work that God had called him to as a minister of the gospel. This passage is not just for pastors. This is for every Christian. So Paul challenged Timothy earlier in 2 Timothy 2.21. He says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So how do we apply this? You're probably thinking, there's a lot there, which I totally get. Go back and listen to it. Uh, there's a lot to cover. So how do we practically apply this passage these, for, these short four verses to our lives in 2023. Well, first, I have two groups that I want this sermon to apply to. One, if you're a Christian. Okay, so if, if you're in this room and you're a Christian, this is for you. And then I'm going to talk about a second group that specifically I want us to apply it to. So if you are a Christian, you are called to be acquainted to the sacred writings that we're talking about, which is, we know, the Bible. Well, how do we do that, all right? If you're a note-taker, here's your application. One, read the Bible every day. Now, just read the Bible. There's an intentionality with the last two words, every day. You're like, whoa, I got all these things to do. Here, here, this might sting a little bit for some of you. If the first thing you check in the morning is your phone, we probably need to recalibrate what we're, where our, our priorities are. I'm including myself in that. I used to get into that habit, oh, let me check my emails, let me check the text, let me see, right? And I got convicted that that's not the first thing I need to be doing, right? We need to be opening this book in the first thing we do every day, right? You make, go make your coffee, I can get that too. But this should be the most important thing. Don't turn on the news, don't check your email, read God's Word. I'm not saying go read 10 chapters a day, but read it. Start small, and as you get more comfortable, read more. Newsflash, when you start reading it, you'll want to read more. Right? It's not about, like, oh, I can't ever read that as much as that person. Like, you just read it. You, it'll happen. So find a reading plan. Like We've gone through reading plans here at the church. 
Uh, come and ask me. Come ask another fellow member. But first and foremost, get a good translation. I cannot stress that enough. Not all translations of the Bible are created equal. Okay? We use the ESV from the pulpit here. That's a phenomenal translation. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew or the seat, and grab it, take it with you. That's the ESV. New American Standard is another one I recommend. And so, that, so we need to read the Bible every day. But not only do we just read it, we need to study the Bible. Find a good study Bible. If you, you already have one, use it. Read the footnotes as you're reading through the passage. That's going to help you grow in your knowledge of the Scriptures. Buy commentaries on a book. If you have a question, hey, what's a good commentary? Come ask me. Uh, read it alongside of your Scripture, right? I'm trying to give some practical recommendations. I know the ESV Study Bible is, is a good one. It's like the size of a, a tombstone. It's huge, but it has a lot of good, good resources in there. John MacArthur has a lot. He has a different translation than his, so use that. I use that one and, and have grown a lot from that. Third, we need to memorize the Bible. I'm preaching to the choir on this one. This is not a strong area of mine, but I, I am trying to work on this. Find a tool that will help you memorize Scripture. Right? We're, as a church, we're trying to go through the book of Philippians. Uh, so start there. Start with one verse and, and work your way through it. There's several tools that are out there. There's a Navigator's Topical Memory System, or there's a pastor at, I think, um, I think it's First Baptist Church or Durham, North Carolina, but he, Andy Davis' is name. Look up Andy Davis Scripture Memorization Method. There's like a PDF file. It's a good resource. Here's one. Pray and meditate on Scripture. Right? We, it's good. If you, hey, like, I don't know how to pray. What better thing to pray than God's Word, right? So a great resource. I've got it up here because I want you to see it. We have them out there. Is this book here, Praying the Bible. We've given these out before here at church several last year. If you don't have a copy, there should be some or at least one. I can get you one if you don't. And a simple method that Donald Whitney uses here is go to the Psalms. Pick the date of the calendar. So today is the 26th, right? Go to Psalm 26. Hey, if that's something that you can pray through, and some of them are like, hey, you know, crush my enemies. Like, I'm not sure that's what we want to be praying all the time. But at the end of the day, this is exactly the method. So he says, hey, if Psalm 26 is not, do it, go to the 30th or 30 more. So 56, 86, 116, right? And one of those, hopefully, should be something you could walk through and pray through in your time. It guides your prayers and increase your prayer life. But also meditate on it, right? We're not talking about the om, right? That, we're not talking about Eastern meditation. We're talking about ruminating over Scripture. Like, put it in your mind, right? Go through it. A great way to do it? Pray through the Bible. He talks about it in this book. So the last one for us in general application is teach the Bible to the lost. You're like, wait, I'm not an elder. I'm not a small group leader, community group leader. So you can teach the Bible to the lost. Here's a great way of doing that. Share the gospel from using Scripture, right? We have tracks and all those things out there, but what better way? Go and read. Hey, I've actually been reading to your coworker or a friend. I've been reading through the book of John. You want to read it with me? They may say no, but they might say yes, okay? And, they, and you have a chance to read them or read it with them. So my second group of people here is parents. There's a distinct reason I'm making this application based on this package, passage, and I think you know why. If you are a parent in this room, which we have a ton of parents in this church, so it hits a lot of us, um, there's some things that we can do on top of what I just mentioned, those other five. Lead your family in family worship. And you're probably, whoa. Yeah, I can do all those other five, but I'm not sure about this one, Jonathan. Yeah, you can. It's super simple. Hey, wait, I have another resource. Look at here. In the back, there are plenty of them. We've got a lot more down in the elders' room. If you are a parent in this room, and even if you have older, you know, it may be different with older kids, but with the younger kids, especially if they're still in your household, this is a phenomenal resource to lead your family in worship. Specifically, fathers. This is your job. 
doesn't say that the moms can't do this, because we clearly see in Scripture, right? But his method is super simple. He says, read the Bible together. Hmm. I think we all have a Bible, and if you don't, we can get you one, right? So there's that. Read the Bible, whether it's just reading a few verses, or I recommend using some of the children's storybook Bibles. Again, not all are created equal. There's two that I would personally recommend, the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's by Sally Lloyd-Jones. It's phenomenal. It's theologically correct, theologically rich. It'll, it's just a beautiful way she uses to describe those, so go purchase that one if you want it. Or there's another one. It's called The Great, uh, the Biggest Storybook Bible by Kevin DeYoung. He's, it's also another ph- phenomenal way because it traces these redemptive threads throughout. It could be a great way for you to get started in this and then eventually as they get older move. And the other thing he says in his book, Pray Together. It's, it's pretty simple. Have your prayer request. Pray for missionaries. Pray for the lost. F- figure out what you guys want to pray through. And the other thing he, he says in this book is sing a song. Right? Rachel confessed to this. I'm not a beautiful singer, so we use a great technology called YouTube. Okay? So find a worship song. You know, there's some great kids ones out there. Uh, there's called the Risers. That's one. But just go find a worship song and lead it. Use the words. The last one that I think we need to do is something more. This is getting into the teaching. And we also have the resource out there. Is use something like this, a catechism. Like, you know, that sounds like, oh, that's not a Baptist thing. Well, maybe not. But it's a great way. We started doing this again recently, uh, walking through James. There's a small, like, really half size of this book for kids. Uh, it's a great resource. Walk through the questions. It's a question-answer thing. It's a great way of teaching doctrine. Like question one, what is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. So I think, church, these are some resources that you can use to begin doing exactly what Paul has exhorted Timothy to do, to stay true to the Scriptures. How else are we going to know the Scriptures? We go and read it. We go study it. We go memorize it. We meditate on it. We pray through it. We teach it to others because we always have to prepare when we teach to others. And then we teach our children if you are a family and have kids. Because it's not society's job to disciple our children. Because goodness knows they're not going to do that. They're going to disciple them in the extremely evil way as possible. They're doing everything they can to destroy. So church, as I conclude, we cannot be a generation that does not know God's word. If you want to see how that ended up, go read the book of Joshua in Judges. It took one generation for them to turn away from God completely and follow after false gods. We must be a people of the book. We must learn the Bible as best as we can. We have no room to leave it up to the world to do this for us. We have to learn the Bible because it points us to Jesus as the way of salvation. So I would encourage you, if you do not know Jesus today, repent and believe. You heard the story that Jesus died on the cross for you. He crushed the serpent. Place your faith on him. And so we also, of course, have to learn this Bible for salvation, but not only that, how we live this life we call Christian. It will guide us in every way. It is the place where we can go and see how God calls us to live. We have to know it inside and out. If not, we will turn into the people of verses 2 through 9 in chapter 3. Woe are we if we do not become acquainted with the sacred writings. Pray with me.